The Baker Street Readers present The Adventure of the Stockbroker's Clerk From the Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes By Arthur Conan Doyle. Shortly after my marriage, I had bought a connection in the Paddington district. Old Mr. Farquhar, from whom I purchased it, had at one time an excellent general practice, but his age and an affliction of the nature of St. Vitus's dance from which he suffered had very much thinned it. The public, not unnaturally, goes on the principle that he who would heal others must himself be whole, and looks askance at the curative powers of the man whose own case is beyond the reach of his drugs. Thus, as my predecessor weakened, his practice declined, until when I purchased it from him it had sunk from twelve hundred to little more than three hundred a year. I had confidence, however, in my own youth and energy, and was convinced that in a very few years the concern would be as flourishing as ever. For three months after taking over the practice I was kept very closely at work, and saw little of my friend Sherlock Holmes, for I was too busy to visit Baker Street, and he seldom went anywhere himself save upon professional business. I was surprised, therefore, when one morning in June, as I sat reading the British Medical Journal after breakfast, I heard a ring at the bell, followed by the high, somewhat strident tones of my old companion's voice. "'Ah, my dear Watson,' said he, striding into the room, "'I am very delighted to see you. I trust that Mrs. Watson has entirely recovered from all the little excitements connected with our adventure of The Sign of Four. "'Thank you. We are both very well,' said I, shaking him warmly by the hand. "'And I hope also,' he continued, sitting down in the rocking chair, "'that the cares of medical practice have not entirely obliterated the interest which you used to take in our little deductive problems.' "'On the contrary,' I answered. "'It was only last night that I was looking over my old notes and classifying some of our past results.' "'I trust you don't consider your collection closed?' "'Not at all.' I should wish nothing better than to have some more of such experiences. Today, for example? Yes, today, if you like. And as far off as Birmingham? Certainly, if you wish it. And the practice? I do my neighbours when he goes. He is always ready to work off the debt. Ha! Nothing could be better, said Holmes, leaning back in his chair and looking keenly at me from under his half-closed lids. I perceive that you have been unwell lately. Summer colds are always a little trying. I was confined to the house by a severe chill for three days last week. I thought, however, that I had cast off every trace of it. So you have. You look remarkably robust. How, then, do you know of it? My dear fellow, you know my methods. You deduced it, then? Certainly. And from what? From your slippers. I glanced down at the new patent leathers which I was wearing. How on earth? I began. But Holmes answered my question before it was asked. Your slippers are new. You could not have had them for more than a few weeks. The soles which you are at this moment presenting to me are slightly scorched. For a moment I thought they might have got wet and been burned in the drying. 
but near the instep there is a small circular wafer of paper with the shopman's hieroglyphics upon it. Damp, of course, would have removed this. You had then been sitting with your feet outstretched to the fire, which a man would hardly do, even in so wet a June as this, if he were in his full health. Like all Holmes's reasoning, the thing seemed simplicity itself when it was once explained. He read the thought upon my features, and his smile had a tinge of bitterness. I'm afraid I'd rather give myself away when I explain. Results without causes are far more impressive. Are you ready to come to Birmingham, then? Certainly. What is the case? You shall hear it all in the train. My client is outside in a four-wheeler. Can you come at once? In an instant. I scribbled a note to my neighbour, rushed upstairs to explain the matter to my wife, and joined Holmes upon the doorstep. Your neighbour is a doctor, said he, nodding at the brass plate. Yes, he bought a practice, uh, as I did. An old established one? Just the same as mine. Both have been ever since the houses were built. Ah, then you got hold of the best of the two. I think I did. But how do you know? By the steps, my dear boy. Yours are worn three inches deeper than his. But this gentleman in the cab is my client, Mr. Hall Pycroft. Allow me to introduce you to him. Uh, whip up your horse, cabby, for we only have just time to catch our train. The man whom I found myself facing was a well-built, fresh-complexioned young fellow, with a frank, honest face and a slight, crisp, yellow moustache. He wore a very shiny top hat and a neat suit of sober black, which made him look like what he was, a smart young city man of the class which have been labelled cockneys, but who give us our crack volunteer regiments, and who turn out more fine athletes and sportsmen than any body of men in these islands. His round, ruddy face was naturally full of cheeriness, but the corners of his mouth seemed to me to be pulled down in a half-comical distress. It was not, however, until we were all in a first-class carriage and well started upon our journey to Birmingham that I was able to learn what the trouble was which had driven him to Sherlock Holmes. We have a clear run here of seventy minutes. I want you, Mr. Hall Pycroft, to tell my friend your very interesting experience exactly as you told it to me or with more detail, if possible. It will be of use to me to hear the succession of events again. It is a case, Watson, which may prove to have something in it, or may prove to have nothing, but which at least presents those unusual and outré features which are as dear to you as they are to me. Now, Mr. Pycroft, I shall not interrupt you again. Our young companion looked at me with a twinkle in his eye. The worst of the story is that I show myself up as such a confounded fool. Of course, it might work out all right, and I don't see I could have done otherwise, but if I have lost my crib and get nothing in exchange, I shall feel what a soft Johnny I've been. I'm not very good at telling a story, Dr. Watson, but it's like this with me. I used to have a billet at Coxon and Woodhouse's of Draper Gardens, but they were let in early this spring through the Venezuelan loan, as you no doubt remember, and came a nasty cropper. I'd been with them five years, and all Coxon gave me a ripping good testimonial when the smash came, but of course we clerks were all turned adrift, all twenty-seven of us. I tried here and tried there, but there were lots of other chaps same as myself, and it was a perfect frost for some time. I'd been taking out three pounds a week at Coxon's, and I'd saved about seventy of them, but I soon worked my way through that and out the other end. I was fairly at the end of my tether at last, and could hardly find the stamps to answer the advertisements or envelopes to stick them to. 
I had worn out my boots paddling up office stairs, and I seemed to be just as far from getting a billet as ever. At last I saw a vacancy at Mawson and Williams, the great stockbroking firm in Lombard Street. I dare say EC is not in your line, but I can tell you that this is about the richest house in London. The advertisement was to be answered by letter only. I sent in my testimonial application without the least hope of getting it, but the answer came by return saying that if I would appear next Monday, I might take over my new duties at once, provided that my appearance was satisfactory. No one knows how these things work. Some people just say the manager just plunges his hand into the heap and takes out the first that comes. Anyhow, it was my innings that time, and I don't ever wish to feel better pleased. The screw was a pound a week rise, and the duties were just about the same as they were at Coxon's. And now I come to the queer part of the business. I was in Diggins out Amsterdam Way, 17 Portus Terrace. Well, I was sitting doing a smoke the very evening after I'd been promised the appointment, when up came my landlady with a card that had Arthur Pinner Financial Agent printed upon it. I had not heard the name before and could not imagine what he wanted with me, but of course I asked her to show him up. In he walked, a middle-sized, dark-haired, dark-eyed, black-bearded man with a touch of the sheeny about his nose. He had a brisk kind of a way with him and spoke sharply like a man who knew the value of time. Mr. Hall Pycroft, I believe, he said. Yes, sir, I answered, pushing a chair towards him. Lately engaged at Coxon and Woodhouse's? Yes, sir. And now on the staff at Mawson's? Quite so. Well, the fact is that I have heard some really extraordinary stories about your financial ability. You remember Parker, who used to be Coxon's manager? He could never say enough about it. Of course I was pleased to hear this. I had always been pretty sharp in the office, but I never dreamed that I was talked about in the city in this fashion. You have a good memory? Pretty fair. Have you kept in touch with the market while you have been out of work? Yes, I read the stock exchange list every morning. Now that shows real application. That is the way to prosper. You won't mind my testing you, will you? Let me see. How are Ayrshire's? Hundred and six and a quarter to a hundred and five and seven eighths. And New Zealand consolidated? Hundred and four. And British Broken Hills? Seven to seven and six. Wonderful! He cried with his hands up. This quite fits in with all that I had heard. My boy, my boy, you are very much too good to be a clerk at Mawson's. This outburst rather astonished me, as you can think. Well, said I, other people don't think quite so much of me as you seem to do, Mr. Pinner. I had a hard enough fight to get this berth, and I'm very glad to have it. Pooh, man, you should soar above it. You are not in your true sphere. Now I'll tell you how it stands with me. What I have to offer is little enough when measured by your ability, but when compared with Mawson's, it's light to dark. Let me see... When do you go to Mawson's? On Monday. Ha! Ha! I think I would risk a little sporting flutter that you don't go there at all. Not go to Mawson's? No, sir. By that day, you will be the business manager of the Franco Midland Hardware Company Limited, with 134 branches in the towns and villages of France, not counting one in Brussels and one in San Remo. This took my breath away. I've never heard of it, said I. Very likely not. It has been kept very quiet, for the capital was all privately subscribed, and it's too good a thing to let the public into. My brother, Harry Pinner, is promoter and joins the board after allotment as managing director. 
He knew I was in the swim down here and asked me to pick up a good man cheap, a young, pushing man with plenty of snap about him. Parker spoke of you, and that brought me here tonight. We can only offer you a beggarly five hundred to start with. Five hundred a year, I shouted. Only that at the beginning. But you are to have an overriding commission of one percent on all business done by your agents. And you may take my word for it that this will come to more than your salary. But I know nothing about hardware. Tut, my boy, you know about figures. My head buzzed and I could hardly sit still in my chair. But a little sudden chill of doubt came upon me. I must be frank with you, said I. Mawson only gives me two hundred, but Mawson is safe. Now, really, I know so little about your company <laughs> that... Ah, <laughs> smart, smart! He cried in a kind of ecstasy of delight. You are the very man for us. You are not to be talked over, and quite right, too. Now, here's a note for a hundred pounds, and if you think that we can do business, you may just slip it into your pocket as an advance upon your salary. That is very handsome. Uh, when should I take over my new duties? Be in Birmingham tomorrow at one. I have a note in my pocket here which you will take up to my brother. You will find him at 126B Corporation Street, where the temporary offices of the company are situated. Of course, he must confirm your engagement, but between ourselves, it will be all right. Really, I, I, I hardly know how to express my gratitude, Mr. Pinner. Not at all, my boy. You have only got your desserts. There are one or two small things, mere formalities, which I must arrange with you. You have a bit of paper beside you there? Kindly write upon it. I am perfectly willing to act as business manager to the Franco Midland Hardware Company, limited, at a minimum salary of five hundred pounds. I did as he asked, and he put the paper in his pocket. There is one other detail. What do you intend to do about Mawson's? I had forgotten all about Mawson's in my joy. All right, and resign. Precisely what I don't want you to do. I had a row over you with Mawson's manager. I had gone up to ask him about you, and he was very offensive. Accused me of coaxing you away from the service of the firm and that sort of thing. At last I fairly lost my temper. If you want good men, you should pay them a good price, said I. He would rather have our small price than your big one, said he. I'll lay you a fiver, said I, that when he has my offer, you will never so much as hear from him again. Done, said he. We picked him out of the gutter, and he won't leave us so easily. Those were his very words. The impudent scoundrel, I cried. I've never so much as seen him in my life. Why should I consider him in any way? I shall certainly not write if you would rather that I didn't. Good. That's a promise, said he, rising from his chair. Well, I'm delighted to have got so good a man for my brother. Here's your advance of a hundred pounds, and here is the letter. Make a note of the address, 126B Corporation Street, and remember that one o'clock tomorrow is your appointment. Good night, and may you have all the fortune that you deserve. That's just about all that passed between us, as near as I can remember. You can imagine, Dr. Watson, how pleased I was at such an extraordinary bit of good fortune. I sat up after night hugging myself over it, and the next day I was off to Birmingham in a train that would take me in plenty of time to my appointment. I took my things over to the hotel in New Street, and then I made my way to the address which had been given me. It was a quarter of an hour before my time, but I thought that it would make no difference. 
126B was a passage between two large shops which led to a winding stone stair from which there were many flats let as offices to companies and professional men. The names of the occupants were painted at the bottom of the wall, but there was no such name as the Franco Midland Hardware Company Limited. I stood there for a few minutes with my art and my boots, wondering whether the whole thing was an elaborate oak or not, when up came a man and addressed me. He was like the chap I'd seen the night before, the same figure and voice, but he was clean-shaven and his air was lighter. Are you Mr. Hall Pycroft? Yes. Oh, I was expecting you, but you were a trifle before your time. I had a note from my brother this morning in which he sang your praises very loudly. I was just looking for the offices when you came. We have not got our name up yet, for we only secured these temporary premises last week. Come up with me, and we will talk the matter over. I followed him to the top of a very lofty stair, and there, right under the slates, were a couple of empty, dusty little rooms, uncarpeted and uncurtained, into which he led me. I had thought of a great office with shining tables and rows of clocks, such as I was used to, and I dare say I stared rather straight at the two deal chairs and the one little table, which, with a ledger and a waste paper basket, made up the whole furniture. Don't be disheartened, Mr. Pycroft, said my new acquaintance, seeing the length of my face. Rome was not built in a day, and we have lots of money at our backs, though we don't cut much dash yet in offices. Pray sit down, and let me have your letter. I gave it to him, and he read over it very carefully. You seem to have made a vast impression upon my brother Arthur, and I know that he is a pretty shrewd judge. He swears by London, you know, and I by Birmingham. But this time I shall follow his advice. Pray consider yourself definitely engaged. What are my duties? You will eventually manage the great depot in Paris, which will pour a flood of English crockery into the shops of a 134 agents in France. The purchase will be completed in a week, and meanwhile you will remain in Birmingham and make yourself useful. Ow! For answer, he took a big red book out of a drawer. This is a directory of Paris with the trades after the names of the people. I want you to take it home with you, and to mark off all the hardware sellers with their addresses. It would be of the greatest use to me to have them. Surely they are classified lists. Not reliable ones. Their system is different from ours. Stick at it, and let me have the lists by Monday at twelve. Good day, Mr. Pycroft. If you continue to show zeal and intelligence, you will find the company a good master. I went back to the hotel with a big book under my arms and very conflicted feelings in my breast. On the one hand, I was definitely engaged and had a hundred pounds in my pocket. On the other, the look of the offices, the absence of a name on the wall, and the other points which would strike a businessman had left a bad impression as to the position of my employers. However, come what might, I had my money, so I settled down to my task. All Sunday I was kept hard at work, and yet by Monday I'd only gotten as far as H. I went round to my employer and found him in the same dismantled kind of room and was told to keep at it until Wednesday and then come again. On Wednesday it was still unfinished, so I hammered away until Friday, that is, yesterday. Then I brought it round to Mr. Harry Pinner. Thank you very much, said he. I fear that I underrated the difficulty of the task. This list will be a very material assistance to me. It took some time. And now I want you to make a list of the furniture shops, for they all sell crockery. Very good. And you can come up tomorrow evening at seven and let me know how you are getting on. 
Don't overwork yourself. A couple of hours at Day's Music Hall in the evening would do you no harm after your labours. <laughs> he laughed as he spoke, and I saw with a thrill that his second tooth upon the left-hand side had been badly stuffed with gold. Sherlock Holmes rubbed his hands with delight, and I stared with astonishment at our client. You may well look surprised, Dr. Watson, but it's in this way. When I was speaking to the other chap in London, at the time he was laughed at my not going to Mawson's, I happened to notice that his tooth was stuffed in this very identical fashion. The glint of the gold in each case had caught my eye, you see. When I put that with the voice and figure being the same, and only those things altered which might have been changed by a razor or a wig, I could not doubt that it was the same man. Of course, you might expect two brothers to be alike, but not that they should have the same tooth stuffed the same way. He bowed me out, and I found myself in the street, hardly knowing whether I was on my head or my heels. Back I went to my hotel, put my head in a basin of cool water and tried to think it out. Why had he sent me from London to Birmingham? Why had he got there before me? And why had he written a letter from himself to himself? It was altogether too much for me, and I could make no sense of it. And then, suddenly, it struck me that what was dark to me might be very light to Mr. Sherlock Holmes. I had just time to get up to town by the night train to see him this morning and to bring you both back with me to Birmingham. There was a pause after the stockbroker's clerk had concluded his surprising experience. Then Sherlock Holmes cocked his eye at me, leaning back on the cushions with a pleased and yet critical face, like a connoisseur who has just taken his first sip of a comet vintage. <laughs> Rather fine, Watson, is it not? There are points in it which please me. I think you will agree with me that an interview with Mr. Arthur Harry Pinner in the temporary offices of the Franco Midland Hardware Company Limited would be a rather interesting experience for the both of us. But how can we do it? I asked. Oh, easily enough. You two are friends of mine who are in want of a billet, and what could be more natural than I should bring both of you round to the managing director? Quite so, of course. I should like to have a look at the gentleman and see if I can make anything of his little game. What qualities have you, my friend, which would make your services so valuable? Or is it possible that... He began biting his nails and staring blankly out of the window, and we hardly drew another word from him until we were in New Street. At seven o'clock that evening, we were walking, the three of us, down Corporation Street to the company's offices. It is no use our being at all before our time, said our client. He only comes there to see me, apparently, for the place is deserted up to the very hour he names. That is suggestive. By Jove, I told you so. That's he, walking ahead of us there. He pointed to a smallish, dark, well-dressed man who was bustling along the other side of the road. As we watched him... He looked across at a boy who was bawling out the latest edition of the evening paper, and running over among the cabs and buses, he bought one from him. Then, clutching it in his hand, he vanished through a doorway. There he goes! These are the very offices into which he has gone. Come with me, and I'll fix it up as easily as possible. Following his lead, we ascended five stories until we found ourselves outside a half-open door at which our client tapped. 
A voice within bade us to enter, and we entered a bare, unfurnished room, such as Hall Pycroft had described. At the single table sat the man whom we had seen in the street, with his evening paper spread out in front of him, and as he looked up at us, it seemed to me that I had never looked upon a face which bore such marks of grief, and of something beyond grief, of a horror such as comes to few men in a lifetime. His brow glistened with perspiration, his cheeks were of the dull, dead white of a fish's belly, and his eyes were wild and staring. He looked at his clerk as though he failed to recognize him, and I could see by the astonishment depicted upon our conductor's face that this was by no means the usual appearance of his employer. "'You look ill, Mr. Pinner.' "'Yes, I, I am not very well,' answered the other, making obvious efforts to pull himself together and licking his dry lips before he spoke. "'Who are these gentlemen whom you have brought with you?' Uh, "'One is Mr. Harris of Bermondsey, and the other is Mr. Price of this town. They are friends of mine and gentlemen of experience, but they have been out of place for some little time, and they hoped that perhaps you might find an opening for them in the company's employment.' "'Very possibly! Very possibly!' cried Mr. Pinner, with a ghastly smile. "'Yes, I, I have no doubt that we shall be able to do something for you. "'What is your particular line, Mr. Harris?' "'I am an accountant,' said Holmes. "'Ah, yes, we shall want something of the sort. "'And you, Mr. Price?' "'Uh, Clark,' said I. "'I have every hope that the company may accommodate you. "'I will let you know about it as soon as we come to any conclusion. "'And now I beg that you will go. "'For God's sake, leave me to myself!' These last words were shot out of him, as though the constraint which he was evidently setting upon himself had suddenly and utterly burst asunder. Holmes and I glanced at each other, and Pycroft took a step towards the table. You forget, Mr. Pinner, that I'm here by appointment to receive some directions from you. Certainly, Mr. Pycroft, certainly. The other resumed in a calmer tone. You may wait here a moment, and there is no reason why your friends should not wait with you. I would be entirely at your service in three minutes if I might trespass upon your patience so far. He rose with a very courteous air, and, bowing to us, he passed out through a door at the farther end of the room, which he closed behind him. What now? whispered Holmes. Is he giving us the slip? Impossible, answered Pycroft. Why so? That door leads to an inner room. Is there no exit? None. Is it furnished? It was empty yesterday. What on earth, then, can he be doing? There is something which I don't understand in this manner. If ever a man was three parts mad with terror, his name is Pinner. What could have put the shivers on him? He suspects that we are detectives. That's it! Holmes shook his head. He did not turn pale. He was pale when we entered the room. It is just possible that— His words were interrupted by a sharp rat-tat from the direction of the inner door. What the deuce is he knocking on his own door for? Again and much louder came the rat-tat-tat. We all gazed expectantly at the closed door. Glancing at Holmes, I saw his face turn rigid, and he leaned forward in intense excitement. Then suddenly came a low— Guggling, gargling sound, and a brisk drumming upon woodwork. Holmes sprang frantically across the room and pushed to the door. It was fastened on the inner side. 
Following his example, we threw ourselves upon it with all our weight. One hinge snapped, then the other, and down came the door with a crash. Rushing over it, we found ourselves in the inner room. It was empty. But it was only for a moment that we were at fault. At one corner, the corner nearest the room which we had left, there was a second door. Holmes sprang to it and pulled it open. A coat and waistcoat were lying on the floor, and from a hook behind the door, with his own braces round his neck, was hanging the managing director of the Franco Midland Hardware Company. His knees were drawn up, his head hung at a dreadful angle to his body, and the clatter of his heels against the door made the noise which had broken in upon our conversation. In an instant I had caught him round the waist and held him up while Holmes and Pycroft untied the elastic bands which had disappeared between the livid creases of skin. Then we carried him into the other room, where he lay with a clay-coloured face, puffing his purple lips in and out with every breath, a dreadful wreck of all that he had been but five minutes before. What do you think of him, Watson? I stooped over and examined him. His pulse was feeble and intermittent, but his breathing grew longer, and there was a little shivering of his eyelids, which showed a thin white slit of ball beneath. It has been touch and go with him, said I. But he'll live now. Just open that window and hand me the water carafe. I undid his collar, poured the cold water over his face, and raised and sank his arms until he drew a long, natural breath. It's only a question of time now, said I, as I turned away from him. Holmes stood by the table, with his hands deep in his trousers' pockets, and his chin upon his breast. I suppose we ought to call the police in now, and yet I confess I'd like to give them a complete case when they come. It's a blessed mystery to me, cried Pycroft, scratching his head. Whatever they want to bring me all the way up here for, and then... That is all clear enough, said Holmes impatiently. It is this last sudden move. You understand the rest, then? I think it is fairly obvious. What do you say, Watson? I shrugged my shoulders. I must confess that I am out of my depths. Oh, surely, if you consider the events at first, they can only point to one conclusion. What do you make of them? Well, the whole thing hinges upon two points. The first is the making of Pycroft write a declaration by which he entered the service of this preposterous company. Do you not see how very suggestive that is? I'm afraid I missed the point. Well, why did they want him to do it? Not as a business matter, for these arrangements are usually verbal, and there is no earthly business reason why this should be an exception. Don't you see, my young friend, that they were very anxious to obtain a specimen of your handwriting, and had no other way of doing it? And why? Quite so. Why? When we answer that, we have made some progress with our little problem. Why? There can only be one adequate reason. Someone wanted to learn to imitate your writing, and had to procure a specimen of it first. But now if we pass on to the second point, we find that each throws light upon the other. That point is the request made by Pinner that you should not resign your place, but should leave the manager of this important business in the full expectation that a Mr. Hall Pycroft, whom he had never seen, was about to enter the office upon the Monday morning. My God! What a blind beetle I have been! Now you see the point about the handwriting. 
Suppose that someone turned up in your place who wrote a completely different hand from that in which you applied for the vacancy. Of course the game would be up. But in the interval the rogue learned to imitate you, and his position was therefore secure, as I presume nobody in the office had ever set eyes upon you. Not a soul. Very good. Of course it was also of the utmost importance to prevent you from thinking better of it, and also to keep you from coming into contact with anyone who might tell you that your double was at work in Mawson's office. Therefore they gave you a handsome advance on your salary, and ran you off to the Midlands, where they gave you just enough work to do to prevent your going to London, where you might have burst their little game up. That is all plain enough. But why should this man pretend to be his own brother? Well, that is pretty clear also. There are evidently only two of them in it. The other is impersonating you at the office. This one acted as your engager, and then found he could not find you an employer without admitting a third person into his plot. This he was most unwilling to do. He changed his appearance as far as he could, and trusted that the likeness, which you could not fail to observe, would be put down to a family resemblance. But for the happy chance of the gold stuffing, your suspicions would probably never have been aroused. Paul Pycroft shook his clenched hands in the air. Good Lord! Well, I've been fooled in this way. What has this other old Pycroft been doing at Mawson's? What shall we do, Mr. Holmes? Tell me what to do. We must wire to Mawson's. Well, they shut at twelve on Saturdays. Uh, never mind, there may be some doorkeeper or attendant. Oh, yes, they keep a permanent guard there on account of the value of the securities that they hold. I remember hearing of it talked about in the city. Very good. We shall wire to him and see if all is well, and if a clerk of your name is working there. That is clear enough. But what is not so clear is why at the sight of us one of the rogues should instantly walk out of the room and hang himself. The paper! croaked a voice behind us. The man was sitting up. Blanched and ghastly, with returning reason in his eyes, and hands which rubbed nervously at the broad red band which still encircled his throat. The paper, of course! yelled Holmes in a paroxysm of excitement. What an idiot I was! I thought so much of our visit that the paper never entered my head for an instant. To be sure, the secret must be there. He flattened it out upon the table, and a cry of triumph burst from his lips. Look at this, Watson! It is a London paper, an early edition of the Evening Standard. Here is what we want. Look at the headlines. Crime in the city, murder at Mawson and Williams, gigantic attempted robbery, capture of the criminal. Here, Watson, we are all anxious to hear it, so kindly read it aloud to us. It appeared from its position in the paper to have been the one event of importance in town, and the account of it ran in this way. A desperate attempt at robbery, culminating in the death of one man and the capture of the criminal, occurred this afternoon in the city. For some time back, Mawson and Williams, the famous financial house, have been the guardians of securities which amount in the aggregate to a sum of considerably over a million sterling. So conscious was the manager of the responsibility which devolved upon him in consequence of the great interest at stake, that safes of the very latest construction have been employed— and an armed watchman has been left night and day in the building. It appears that last week a new clerk named Hall Pycroft was engaged by the firm. 
This person appears to have been none other than Beddington, the famous forger and cracksman, who, with his brother, had only recently emerged from a five-year spell of penal servitude. By some means which are not yet clear, he succeeded in winning under a false name this official position in the office, which he utilized in order to obtain molding of various locks and a thorough knowledge of the position of the strong room and the safes. His customer eat Mawson's for the clerks to leave at midday on Saturday. Sergeant Tucson of the city police was somewhat surprised, therefore, to see a gentleman with a carpet bag come down the steps at twenty minutes past one. His suspicions being aroused, the sergeant followed the man, and with the aid of Constable Pollock, succeeded, after a most desperate resistance, in arresting him. It was at once clear that a daring and gigantic robbery had been committed. Nearly a hundred thousand pounds worth of American railway bonds, with a large amount of scrip in other mines and companies, was discovered in the bag. On examining the premises, the body of the unfortunate watchman was found doubled up and thrust into the largest of the safes, where it would not have been discovered until Monday morning had it not been for the prompt action of Sergeant Tewson. The man's skull had been shattered by a blow from a poker delivered from behind. There could be no doubt that Beddington had obtained entrance by pretending that he had left something behind him, and having murdered the watchman, rapidly rifled the large safe and then made off with his booty. His brother, who usually works with him, has not appeared in this job as far as can at present be ascertained, although the police are making energetic inquiries as to his whereabouts. "'Well, we may save the police some trouble in that direction,' said Holmes, glancing at the haggard figure huddled up by the window. "'Human nature is a strange mixture, Watson. You see that even a villain and a murderer can inspire such affection that his brother turns to suicide when he learns his neck is forfeited. However, we have no choice as to our action. The doctor and I will remain on guard, Mr. Pycroft.' If you will have the kindness to step out for the police. The Adventure of the Stockbroker's Clock by Arthur Conan Doyle With James Gelter as Sherlock Holmes and Hall Pycroft Tony Grobe as Dr. Watson and Beddington's brother Baker Street theme performed by Jonathan Kinnersley. Produced by James Gelter, Tony Grobe, and Kirby Landers. Directed by James Gelter. Willkommen bei Nachtem Niesen, Bossenmakler, Aufleger. You want to do this one in German, Tony? <laughs> Okay, well, <laughs> you'll come in by Nachtem Niesen, Bosen Makler Auflinger. <laughs> I've only figured out how to say that one bit. <laughs> yeah, you you, you got to get the uh, I'm your co-host, Jay Gelter, yeah. in there. <laughs> das co-host? Yeah, I, I don't even know how to say co-host. Yeah. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, been Tony Grobe. But ladies and gentlemen, welcome to After the Read, Stockbrokers, Clark edition. And yes, we're saying Clark. Yes. I'm your co-host, Jay Gelter. And I'm your co-host, Tony Grobe. And we could say Clark, like yeah. an American. Some might say that would be appropriate. By thunder. Sherlock Holmes, he went and he got himself a clerk. 
by thunder yeah well, uh, we haven't got one one day we'll get into a story a conan doyle story that features some americans and we'll really break down oh man a, a very in-depth analysis of his writing of american characters <laughs> <laughs> which are all oh, from texas and so i was way. gonna say they're they're all very southern yes my <laughs> thunder my thunder yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, some business at the top, as always. Thank you to all of our patrons, but especially thank you to our ever-growing list of detective-tier patrons, which mm. at this point is Anna Behrens, Don Grobe, Donna Harlow, Holly Kennedy, Ian Hefley, Mary Allen, Denise Glover, and Kelsey. Now, Kelsey, you just signed up with the name Kelsey, though your email shows your full name. So for now, we'll just go with Kelsey. If you want us to give your full name, by all means, email us, bakerstreetreaders at gmail.com. Never been a better time to be a detective tier patron because now detective tier patrons get mugs. Yes. Beautiful. Lovely mugs. Baker Street podcast reader mugs. Um, mugs are being sent out as we speak. If you are a detective tier patron and you want your mug, but you have not sent me your physical mailing address, please uh, email us at bakerstreetreaders at gmail.com so we can get your mug to you. Other fun news about the podcast, we now have a beautiful website. Mm -hmm. It is bakerstreetreaderspodcast.com where you can listen to the first episode of the podcast for free. Of course, if you're listening to this one, you probably are a patron and you don't need to listen to the first episode for free. But if you know anybody who is interested in the podcast or who you think might be interested in the podcast, send them to the website. They can listen to the first episode for free and a number of previews of uh, other episodes so they can get a taste, learn what it is all about. And as always, you can email us at bakerstreetreaders at gmail.com to share your thoughts or to ask us questions. We did get an email, Tony. Mailbag time. Did we? Yay! Did. Yay! <laughs> a uh, John Piper answering a question back from our cardboard box episode. Ooh. We were talking about Sherlock Holmes stories that involve affairs. He says, what about the basic plot line of Study mm -hmm. and Scarlet? And I'll give it to you, John, that there is a three-way relationship in that story, but there is not a true affair. Mm -hmm. the, the lover tries to take her away, to marry her before she can marry her fiancé, but I don't think an official affair happens in that one. But John also says, read stories to read. Mm -hmm. Why not the study in Scarlet as a two-nighter? One of my favorites, sadly unknown. I, I like studying Scarlet too. Tony and I have been talking about novels and how we might approach them in the future. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be done as a two-parter because the novels are about six to eight times longer than the short stories. <laughs> and that would be a whopping uh, podcast episode right there. Yeah, for those of you who didn't follow us while we were doing the live shows, we did do the Hound of the Baskervilles that we edited down significantly and it's still made for a four-hour show. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But uh, we, may, we may tackle that one as a podcast. We may tackle some of the other mm -hmm. novels as a podcast um, at some point, but we'd probably have to do it in multiple parts. 
but certainly continue to listen to the podcast and you patrons will be the first to know. Yes. But anyway, let's talk Stockbrokers Clark, shall we? Indeed. It was published in The Strand in March of 1893. Uh, Tony, how do you feel about Stockbrokers Clark? How do I feel about it? I think it's an interesting episode. You know, it's one of those uh, one of those tales where not not unlike Indiana Jones, not a whole lot would have happened differently if Sherlock had not gotten involved in this mystery. That is true. I suppose the brother might have succeeded in his uh, attempt to take his own life, right? Rather than being that's, saved. That's not nothing. <laughs> that that is that is not nothing. Paul, However, Paul Pycroft would just be standing in the room, being like, "What what's going on in there?" Lots yeah. of noise. <laughs> There's oh. there's some some tapping. That's that's strange. Oh oh, it stopped. We're good. <laughs> yeah, <it's... laughs> well, he hasn't come back. I, I guess I'll come back in the morning. Yeah, I mean, it should be said that Stockbrokers Clark is not among the most popular Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's very much a pretty generic as the Sherlock Holmes stories go. I'll, I'll admit. Um, mm-hmm. The drama of the person hanging themselves at the end, I think, is what is what redeems it, because that's that's not a standard climax to one of these stories. Um, but I mean, not even Jeremy Brett would touch this one. They never. Made <laughs> it the well, you know, I mean, other than other than showing some glee, there are definitely some some great deductions mm-hmm. in this on Sherlock's part, but in terms of actually bringing the case to a conclusion, there's not a whole lot there. Right. It, and I mean, most people say, why would, why read Stockbrokers Clark when you can just read the Redheaded League, which is the same story, only better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and certainly, more, right. certainly more outlandish. Yes. And uh, if you haven't, uh, if you're not familiar with the Redheaded League, it's another one of these stories where uh, a guy is offered a fake job in order to distract him while criminals do criminal things. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the job is very similar, copying down something out of a book. Yep. You kind of get the sense on this one that Conan Doyle didn't have a great idea for that month. And so he decided, <laughs> oh, what if I revisited one that I'd you know, done mm-hmm. before, kind of put mm-hmm. a different spin on it. But usually that's usually the more outlandish one is the second one when you do something like that (laughs) although i i guess that's why i hadn't thought about this i guess that's why it was important for conan doyle to put this one chronologically before the red-headed league oh because he makes a point of pointing out that this happens is pretty much the next adventure that holmes and watson go on after the sign of four Mm -hmm. um and red-headed league happens yet later on after that because obviously, if Redheaded League had already happened, Holmes halfway through Pycroft Hall story would go like, "Oh, so it's like the Redheaded League." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not not just. I mean, he does say, "Surely, surely, it's perfectly obvious why right. he offered you this job in another town." Right, but that's but, when he. I think, but I think it's very clear that he figures that out on the train. Yeah. Um, yep. Whereas with Redheaded League, I think he's. He pretty much knows what's going on from the get go. Yep. This would be why, because he's already he's already done a case that's like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I also I, in doing a little research, I found a few people commenting on the the nonsense timeline of this story. Mm-hmm. All right, let, let's let's walk through this. When does Holmes visit Watson? 
in the evening. No. He specifically says it happens just after breakfast. Oh, that's right. I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of, never mind. I've got this. Yeah. Oh, they, they, I had a different another, one in my head. Right. We did another one where he visits Watson at home in the yeah. evening. And this one, <laughs> Watson has just finished breakfast and reading the paper mm-hmm. when home shows up. They then immediately take a carriage to get on the train. Yep. Home specifically says that the train ride is 70 minutes. Mm-hmm. And yet they arrive just in time for the criminal to pick up an evening paper and make a seven o'clock appointment. Right. Yeah, with with no explanation of what, what happens in between. Yeah, there's this weird time vortex on that mm. train, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, or yeah. Watson eats his breakfast very late in the day. What? I suppose that's possible. Yeah. Perhaps it was the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I just don't think Coda Doyle was paying that much attention <laughs> to that one. I think you're right. That that seems to be a recurring theme, I think, yeah. in, in some small details of these as we go through them. Yeah, d- dates, and I mean, there are plenty of times where he says, you know, it was on a Wednesday, two days later on Saturday, this happened. And you're like, what? <laughs> Another fun Conan Doyle way to think about what, what, what was Conan Doyle's real thinking on this was his <laughs> position on Cockneys. Oh, God, yes. Fine, fine athletic people. He he basically does that like I'm really going to compliment someone in the most demeaning way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of people say they're not very smart, that they're not uh, the most uh, respectable folk, but you know they make great soldiers. Yeah, and yeah. boy, are, and boy can they boy can they play a sport. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's like those people who are like, I'm not racist. I love Michael Jordan. Yeah. It's like well, that doesn't exactly okay. Mm-hmm. Not 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 a great redeeming uh, moment there. And I was trying to I was trying to balance this out because he does at the very beginning say that Hall Pycroft is he says is smart, mm-hmm. calls him smart. But I think he probably might just be saying like physically, like he's a very well dressed yeah. individual. He's a smart, you know. He he is describing his appearance in that that section of the story yeah so that makes sense yeah but he certainly then makes the character appear to be quite dull because <laughs> like come on yeah some guy walks up to you like oh would you like to start a a gajillion dollar job tomorrow don't ask any questions yeah and, and don't tell the person who just hired you that you're not coming yeah <laughs> i'd be like mm, hmm hmm mm. I guess yeah. Victorians were just more trusting people than you or I. I suppose we didn't have certainly. Yes, we didn't have Nigerian princes sending us email, <laughs> sending them emails. You know, yeah, but that that's kind of a recurring thing in these stories too. I mean, there's there's the case. There, is it the question of identity? The stepfather dresses up as another as person, the, yeah, as in order suitor. to in order to be a suitor to his daughter-in-law to keep track of her fortune, and she's like, oh. He would. <laughs> but hey, hey conan doyle deals with that one because she has terrible eyesight yeah that explains it all yes <laughs> that explains it all another thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense is the the doctor who watson buys the practice from mm-hmm. suffered from saint vitus's dance mm-hmm. 
which is a neurological disorder that causes spasms in the face and 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 uh, upper body mm -hmm. but it's it, it's a disease that affects children it's very rarely known to affect adults Ooh. and well, you that's think intriguing. conan doyle as a doctor would, would kind of know this, that yeah right would you think like okay then is he like making a point trying to do something thematic by having and no it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense hmm. i did learn it's called saint vitus's dance because it hap it happens in children and saint vitus was a sicilian who was martyred by the roman emperor in 300 a.d after he cured the the emperor's son of epilepsy by driving out a demon you know, wow, like you doctors do, and then and then the emperor killed him. Yeah, because wow, because he said it was the act of God, not of pagan deities. He cured his son, but for the wrong reason. Y yes, <laughs> or gave credit to the wrong god. Yeah, well, um, but Saint Vitus himself was only like a kid. He was he was like a twelve year old kid. Cures oh. this other kid by driving out a demon emperor kills him but now he is the patron saint of epileptics huh. yeah but uh yeah i think uh, that's all i gotta say on this one <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i'm i think i'm in the i'm in the same boat maybe it's not the most thrilling but you know i really enjoy it like i said i think the drama of the ending of mm -hmm. the attempted suicide which is not something that happens very often in homes Mm -hmm. oh there is a there is one where a guy turns a gun on himself isn't there he's gonna shoot somebody else and then he does the classic turn and shoots himself i think Ooh. in um you know i think i know which one i it is but if i feel like i'm gonna say it and i'm gonna end up being wrong and we're gonna get emails <laughs> <laughs> we'll get them anyway jay yes all right so send me an email i'm gonna say i i feel like that's what happens in solitary cyclist uh -huh. No, no, he shoots the other guy. He doesn't shoot himself. He shoots the other guy. Bah, whatever. If you can okay. think of another one where uh, a character commits or attempts to commit suicide, Musgrave Ritual. Thor. Yes. And Thor Bridge. And Thor Bridge. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, we got there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I guess that is all for now. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tony, for joining me this evening. You're quite welcome. Thank you, Jay, for having me. Uh -huh. And ladies and gentlemen, we will see you all again with the adventure of the Naval Treaty. Oh. <laughs> dun, dun, dun.